Then O'Connor went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged frock in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat off first, then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young man was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when he went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then he would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man, Samuel, grew into the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons. It is not a good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all of the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with an envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed upon Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut out from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hopni and Phineas shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day, and I will rise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, 
and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And every one who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, Please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of his bread. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Rika. That was a long reading, so well done. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Father, your word is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. Help us to hear your word and to hear your voice so that we may walk in the light and not in the darkness. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Our great need today is a vaccine for COVID-19. The great need between 1918 and 1920, I was only a young boy, was a vaccine for the Spanish flu. Now, the Spanish flu was probably the greatest pandemic that our world has known in recent history. It affected all of the world, India, China, New Zealand, Europe, Brazil, Ghana, everywhere. Almost a quarter of the world's population was infected by the Spanish flu, and somewhere between 20 and 50 million people died. And most of the deaths were people between 20 and 40. Normally, flu uh, kills the youngest and the oldest, but in this case, it was those aged between 20 and 40. That flu recurred in 2009-2010. It was then called swine flu, but it was the same virus, H1N1, and thankfully, it didn't have the same effect. Our passage this morning obviously isn't dealing with COVID-19 or flu or epidemics, but it is actually dealing with, with a great need. The language of need isn't obvious in this passage, but it is very obvious that Israel is facing a great need, a great famine in actual fact, a spiritual famine. So the background for 1 Samuel is judges. And you remember in the book of Judges, chapter 19, chapter 20, you have civil war, you have chaos, you have lawlessness. Chapter 21, verse 25, right at the end of the book of Judges, the last verse, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, meaning it was anarchy. And here in 1 Samuel chapter 2, the priesthood are incompetent, they corrupt, In fact, the temple is being used as a brothel. Now, the key to our passage is actually chapter 3, verse 1. So have a look at chapter 3, verse 1, and I really do hope you have your Bibles open in front of you. We need to do some work in the text, and uh, if you want to stay with me, it will be a great help if you have your Bible either on your cell phone or an actual Bible in front of you. The key for us is chapter 3, verse 1b. Why was all of this happening? Why was there such brokenness? Well, we are told. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. So here's the reason. Here's the reason for the anarchy, for the civil war, for the lawlessness, for the corruption, for the sexual immorality. The word of God was rare. 
No one was seeking after the word of God. No one was asking God to speak and to intervene in the affairs of man. So let's have a look at this passage. That's the background. There's a spiritual famine. There's a spiritual epidemic. And the epidemic is that there's no spiritual vaccine and no one is looking for one. The word of God was rare in those days. Let's unpack the passage. The secrecy of God, the judgment of God, and the determination of God. So once again, as we saw in chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, with Hannah's prayer, her prayer wasn't so much about herself. No, it was about God, the nature of God, the purposes of God, the character of God. And so as we read this passage, and Rika's just read it to us, we have all these characters all these actors on the stage, but actually the passage is telling us about God and God's purposes and what God is doing behind the scenes. So let's dig in straight away, the secrecy of God. God often works so quietly that you can't hear it. But the sin at Shiloh was so loud that you couldn't miss it. So let's first have a look at Shiloh and their sin. Let me pick it up again, verse 13. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to, to, to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burnt, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the son of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt." Now, God had given provision for the priesthood. The priesthood had no property, and so God made provision that the priesthood would earn their living from the service they gave at the temple. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, there are clear instructions that when anyone brought a sacrifice, uh, the breast of the animal, whichever part that was, and the right thigh would be given to the priest. That was part of their income part of their stipend. As Paul tells us, the worker, meaning the Christian worker, deserves his wages. I need to say that, otherwise I won't be paid at the end of the month. (laughs) But so far had Israel wandered from God that it had become common practice that not only were the priests given the breast and the right thigh, but the priests would wander around the altars where there were pots and boilers and cauldrons and brise, and in addition to the right thigh and the breast, they would take their three-pronged bry fork and put it into the pot, obviously looking for the largest piece, and take that out for themselves. So what you had there was, was corruption. They were, they were corrupting the sacrifice, which was meant for God. No wonder we read there verse 17, thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. They were exploiting people, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Perhaps they were threatening them, taking it by force. Think of those mafia movies where where the mafia goes from house to house or business to business within their precinct, uh, asking for danger money. 
So I wonder whether these priests weren't going around and saying, if you don't give us um, from your pot, uh, you'll get more danger from God. So they were exploiting the people. They were corrupting what was meant to be a sacrifice to God. Now, of course, nothing has changed. Do you know that the Reformation, 1517, was started by Martin Luther because of corruption, financial corruption? That's exactly what's happening here. So what was happening was Pope Leo X was building St. Peter's Basilica. It's a massive, massive cathedral. And he needed more money. And so he went out, he sent his, his disciple, so to speak, John uh, Johann uh, Tetzel, and uh, he went round to the churches gathering what they called indulgences. Now indulgences, it was just a fancy word for giving more money to the church. And they threatened, they said, if you don't give money, there will be trouble. If you do give money, you will spend, you and your loved ones will spend less time in purgatory. I mean, that's a pretty, that's a pretty strong uh, threat. If you don't give money, if you don't give more money, you and your loved ones will spend more years, more centuries in purgatory. In fact, uh, Tetzel had a little, he had a little poem that was said, or a song. It said, as soon as money in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory's fire springs. So that's what's happening here. God's work, God's purposes are used for financial gain. We have that in the prosperity church where you are told that if you have enough faith, if you give enough seed money, that you will be blessed. It's almost a kind of an ecclesiastical pyramid scheme. And uh, it's almost foolproof, because if you don't get what you asked for, well, it's your fault. You didn't have enough faith. You didn't have enough money. That's exploitation of people. It's saying if you give enough money, if you have enough seed faith, uh, seed money and faith, that God will bless you. If you are barren, this is how you can, you can be healed, or so to speak, from barrenness. This is how you can get out of your trouble. This is how you can get out of your poverty. This is how you can get out of your illness. I'm told that there's some churches that say, walk around your neighborhood and uh, find the house you really like. Stand outside the house. Claim the house in the name of Jesus. And if you have enough faith and give enough seed money, it will be yours. My dear friends, that's total exploitation, isn't it? That is misusing the gospel. That's misusing God's very means of drawing us to himself for your own purpose, for your own financial gain. Well, that's what's happening here with the boys of Eli. But it was more... And it doesn't surprise us. Notice verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with a woman who was serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it's no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. So what's happened? The temple of God at Shiloh, the very place you are to meet God, has become a brothel. That's what's happened. The place where sins are to be confessed became the place where sin was committed. Now, no doubt the author of Samuel wrote this down. It was true, but he wrote it down to shock us at how bad things were in Israel. Everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. Sadly, it no longer shocks us. 
There's been too many revelations, hasn't there, of the exploitation, the financial exploitation of people in religious gatherings and churches. There's been too many revelations of sexual exploitation within the church. We've kind of been immunized by the thousands of uh, sexual abuse cases within, within the Catholic Church. And yet, my dear friends, they are no less tragic or evil. So once again, what we see here, if you have a look at the key, chapter 3, verse 1, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days, you see cause and effect. There's always cause and effect. Actions have consequences. There's a famine. There's a spiritual famine. No one is interested in God's word. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Well, what is the consequence? It's a brokenness. It's a dysfunctionality. It's a distortion of human life. It's always like that. There's a close correlation between God and his word. In actual fact, it's two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other, really. You can't have God without his word. You can't have his word without God. In fact, the sign of your commitment to God, the sign of your submission to God, is your submission to his word. So if you treat his word with content, if, if you ignore it, if you reject it, if you change it, well, that shows what you think about God. The two always go together, God and his word. There's another consequence. Have a look. Turn back to chapter 2, verse 12. If chapter 3, verse 1 is the, is the, is the end of the book, the closing cover, chapter 2, verse 12 is the opening cover. The two go together. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Well, why didn't they know the Lord? Because they weren't interested in his word. So in between these two covers, they were worthless men. They didn't know the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 1, the, Lord, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. In between those two covers, what do you find? Well, you find sin. You find brokenness. You find dysfunctionality. You find distortion. The world becomes a nasty place. It's quite a frightening statement, that verse 12. Have a look at it. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. I mean, Eli's boys were well known. I mean, they had position, they had status, they had power, they were living the life, they were well healed, no doubt. And yet God calls them worthless. So, yeah, you have uh, the businessmen of the year, front page of the Sunday Times. And God calls them worthless. Why? Because the word of God was rare in their lives. Jesus taught the same thing in Luke chapter 12. You remember, he talked about the rich fool who had so much goods, he had to build more barns. And he said, well, let me eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, you fool, you fool. You were rich in the things of this world, but you were not rich towards God. Imagine standing before God, the creator of the universe, the judge of all. There you standing on your own, no family, no friends, no baptismal certificate, no church membership certificate. No, you're there on your own, and God looks you in the eye. What is he going to say? Will he say, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's so good to have you home. Or is he going to say, you worthless man? You worthless woman. 
you fool. If you suspect that that may be you, I think a smart thing would be is to get back to the Word of God. That's what it is. The Word of God should not be rare in your life. Remember, I've often talked about the one-year Bible. Why don't you get the one-year Bible? Read the Bible. You can read the Bible in one year. So what it does is day one, it says Genesis 1, Psalm 1, Matthew 1. Day 2, Genesis 2, Psalm 2, Matthew 2. Day 3, and so on. And it takes you through the Bible, 15, 20 minutes per day. You can read the whole Bible in one year. What happens when you read the Bible? God, by his Spirit, impacts your mind, starts changing your mind, changing your values, changing your thinking, changing your dreams, your hopes, your values, your aspirations, your fears. God and his Spirit starts applying the truth of God's Word to your mind, to your heart, to your life. Back to Shiloh. The sins of Shiloh are so loud you can't miss it. It's in your face. So you almost miss what God is doing because God is quietly working behind the scenes if you look carefully. You see, growth is seldom noisy. Growth is normally quiet. And God is behind the scenes growing his leader, growing his salvation. So have a look at the text. You must have a look at the text because the author shows us in the literary structure of the passage how God is quietly working behind the scenes. And I really do want you to see this because it's so exciting. Well, I find find it exciting. Have a look. Chapter 2, verse 11. You have Samuel, who is the boy, who is ministering to the Lord. Then verse 12 to 17, you have the corruption of Eli's boys. Then chapter 2, verse 18, once again, Samuel is ministering before the Lord. And then you have that lovely picture from 18 to 21 of this family serving God and God blessing this family. Then verse 22 to 25, you have the sexual sins of the Eli boys. And then verse 26, again, there's a repetition. Samuel is ministering ministering, growing both in stature and favor with the Lord. Then you have God's judgment. Have a look. Verse 27 to 36. God's judgment on Eli and his boys. Then chapter 3, verse 1. Once again, this repetition. It's the fourth time. Samuel, what is he doing? He is ministering. So it often seems as if God is absent. God is missing. You think to yourself, where is God in this story? He's missing in action. Only later to discover that he was accomplishing his eternal purposes behind the scenes, unheard, unseen, but unmistakable. So these brief Samuel verses are striking. Eli's boys are loud, they're abusive, they're abrasive, they're in your face, but God is quietly working in the background. And the author of these chapters is saying, if you want to know what God is doing, keep your eye on Samuel. In fact, Samuel is the dominant actor. The others are forgotten in the trash heap of history. During the Second World War, one of the British bombers was returning from Germany back to the UK, and Nazi anti-aircraft bullets hit the gas tanks of the bomber, but there was no explosion. And the next day, the pilot who was, who was, who was 
Delighted to be home, of course, wanted to find out why these shells didn't explode. They found 12 shells which failed to explode. 11 were empty, but one of them had a slip of paper in it. And on the paper in Czech, it read, this is all we can do for you now. So he did some research and discovered there were Czech prisoners of World War working in a munitions factory for the Germans. They weren't able to blow up the plant or assassinate Hitler. All they did was not put charges or dynamite or powder in some of the shells. It was quiet, unnoticed, and yet it proved it produced salvation for at least one bomber quietly working behind the scenes. Now that is often God's way in redemptive history. We sometimes think God has abandoned us. Only to find out, perhaps much later, that God was quietly working behind the scenes, accomplishing his purposes. All right, second principle. First principle was the secrecy of God. Second principle is the judgment of God. Have a look again at verse 22. Let's just, let's pick it up, verse 24. Eli says to his sons, No, my sons, it's no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, Eli doesn't come off very well in this passage. Perhaps the only mitigating factor is he was old and past it. But he knows about the greed. He knows about the corruption. He knows about the sexual immorality. He speaks to his boys, but there's no action. There's no gesture to expel them. There's no threat of unemployment. There's no, there's no church discipline. So Eli seems to prefer my boys to my God. For Eli, his blood was thicker than his faith. But God will not be mocked. Verse 25, But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, if you read that quickly, you may get it wrong. You may think it says, The boys did not listen to Eli, and so God decided to put them to death. But notice carefully, that is not what it says. It says, Eli's boys didn't listen to their father because it was God's will to put them to death. They had gone too far. They'd gone beyond repentance. Now, the Bible doesn't teach that God judges and damns innocent men and women just because he wants to. He doesn't say that. It doesn't teach that. But it does teach that if you oppose God, if you oppose God, if you oppose God, if you oppose God, there comes a time when God says, if that's what you want, that's what you get. God is not a toy. He's not a plaything. Some of you have small children. You have Play-Doh. You can turn Play-Doh into anything you like. God is not like that. He's not Play-Doh. So we read in Exodus, God was warning Pharaoh and the Egyptians of his judgment. He sends a messenger, Moses. He sends a message. He sends a sign. One times, two times, three times, four times, and so on. Ten times. 
And we are told over and over that Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord. Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord. There comes a point where the text says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's a frightening thought, isn't it? The two are not mutually exclusive. There comes a point when, when God will withdraw his offer of grace. When God will withdraw his offer of repentance. We pick that up in Romans chapter 1. You get the same thing, verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then it's repeated another two times, and God gave them up, and God gave them up. God is not Play-Doh, so it's not our place to question God or accuse God. It's actually our place to tremble before a God who can justly make sinners deaf to the call to repentance. Now, we never know when that has reached for any person or even for ourselves. We don't know. So my advice is don't presume on God's grace. Don't think I'll get right with God next year or 10 years' time or when I'm old or just before I die. God will be there when you die, but you may no longer believe in him. So you won't even call on him. As I said last week, find the Lord before you need him. Just one last comment on the judgment of God. God very often judges people by their own sin. So Eli and his sons scorned the high privilege of priesthood. So God said, I will not only take it away from you, this high privilege of priesthood, which he did, but I will take it away from your family forever. God judged them by their own sin. God says, you have gorged yourself on illicit fillet steaks. Well, I'm going to lead you into famine. Were you begging for bread? Notice verse 36. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. God very often judges people by their own sin. Richard Nixon, who was a president in America, was a very proud man. And he wanted to become one of the most famous presidents in American history. And to that end, he decided to have all the conversations he had in the Oval Office taped. It's precisely those tapes that exposed his lies and his corruption and forced him to resign. It's an irony. So the principle is not only will your sins find you out, but you will reap what you sow, and God judges people by their own sins. Think about that and your own sin. Lastly, and we close with this, we're nearly done. The secrecy of God, the judgment of God, and the determination of God. So we find in this chapter human sin, human pride, arrogance, corruption, sexual immorality, disobedience. 
But none of that will thwart the purposes of God. None of it. God's purposes will not be thwarted. God will save his people. God will have a people for himself. God will raise up a savior. And so we read verse 34. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And if you read the next chapter or two, they not only die on the same day, so does Eli. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Now, obviously, that's referring to Samuel, who becomes the faithful priest, in contrast to Eli's boys. But it's also referring to Christ, the ultimate priest, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate savior, who will reign forever, who has come to rescue us from our brokenness. Well, let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect again on God's word. You tell God where you are. Father, will you forgive us where we have ignored your word or rejected your word? Forgive us when we have neglected your word, and we do that uh, too often, Lord. Will you forgive us? Will you help us to be people of the book? And because we're people of the book, we are the people of God. Father, there may be some here this morning who know that God is speaking to them and you know that you need to repent of your sin before the time comes when God withdraws his offer of repentance. Father, will you deal with us, all of us, even those secret sins? Will you help us to repent? And Father, will you help us to trust your word that tells us that our final salvation our final security, our final hope, our rock and our refuge is not found in the things of this world, but is found in our God. So, Lord, write these truths upon our hearts, and we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.